Welcome. Thanks for being here today. Oh my gosh, thanks for asking me. I'm so honored to be here. We just finished teaching a four-week series on polyvagal, and it was amazing. Yes, it was amazing. What was your favorite part about it? Oh, man. I know like how learning about polyvagal for me has really impacted my life, so seeing how it clicks with other people through experience and just trying to help people get more connected to their bodies and themselves and more aware, that was probably my favorite part. I feel the same way. When there's that look in someone's eye that they're following every word that you're Mm -hmm. saying, and they're not our words. We're just simply translating concepts and theories and wisdom from millions of years of intellect from the nervous system. And we're just sharing it with this group of people and they're following us and they're relating it to themselves. And then when they're able to share and impact each other's experience in that moment and this little light goes off in their eyes, that's that's my favorite part. The eyes. I know, you can tell. So today we're talking about polyvagal theory. Yeah. Which is basically the nervous system. Yeah. It's basically learning about who you are, understanding your nervous system in the context of yourself as an individual, in relationships, and in the environment. That's so interesting because in Ayurveda, we look at everything through the lens of the unique nature of the person, Mm -hmm. the unique nature of the illness, Mm -hmm. and then the unique nature of the remedy and the way that you just describe that. Will you say what you just said one more time? Yeah. Polyvagal theory is essentially just about understanding your nervous system in the context of who you are as an individual, in the context of your relationships, and in the context of your environment. So what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I think understanding your nervous system is key to understanding how you will navigate through daily challenges. It's understanding how your life experience has impacted your responses or reactions to life, to what is going on in life. I think I just like, it really impacted the way I live. I'm explaining from a place of knowing experientially, like Mm -hmm. I have probably lived a life that's felt like half a life without even knowing it. And then learning about polyvagal theory and learning how to apply it to my life has helped me find a way to live out of this. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's truly living. feels like the most connected to self, connected to the world, connected to others than I've ever felt like. And learning about these tools I find to be incredibly helpful if you experience anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. or anything in between that spectrum of upregulation, of lots of thoughts or chaos in the mind, of social anxiety, of just excess stress. Mm -hmm. and that sympathetic is going as well as someone who might feel the opposite of that oftentimes which is that down regulation that presence of fog lethargy depression stagnation of mind and stagnation of body and if you experience that in your life at all this is a great place to be you've stumbled on a perfect episode to explore why that happens Mm -hmm. and ways to mitigate that through practices or quite literally just understanding your relationship with the world around you and what's happening within you yeah we've all experienced trauma to some degree whether it's very individualized or even just collectively as a society and stress is a chronic problem that we don't know how to navigate. And I would say like for a while, research came out saying stress was the problem. And then there's other research that came out that said it's not the problem. Let's talk a little bit about the nervous system and what that even means when someone's referencing the nervous system and how everything we do influences the nervous system. The nervous system influences everything we do. So the nervous system has a lot of parts to it. There's the sympathetic nervous system, which is basically just your sympathetic state. So flight, fight, freeze, 
Fawn is the new one. And that's... I can get down with Fawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I resonate with Fawn deeply. Understood, it's that overcompensation but... in the moment. If something frightens you that you kind of overcompensate with maybe excess kindness, but really it comes from a place of deep-seated fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the, I would say, the responses that are most well-known. Those like fight, flight, freeze responses in the sympathetic nervous system. Your body also has the parasympathetic nervous system, which includes the ventral vagal state and the dorsal vagal state, also known as rest and digest in the regulated ways. And then there's also the vagus nerve, which is the largest cranial nerve that goes from your brainstem through other organs of your body, like your lungs, your heart, your gut, your digestive tract. And The vagus nerve is basically just a conduit of neural activity. Your body has a way of communicating to your brain and your brain has a way of communicating to your body, but it's important to note that 80% of communication through that conduit, through the vagus nerve, is coming from your body to your brain. And so our bodies are actually communicating to us through what we would call an autonomic language, which is really just saying it's not cognitive, it's unconscious. And you know that just based off daily examples in life. So say you are cooking something and forgot that the pot was hot and you touch it with your hand, your body will automatically respond in a way based off of the neural activity coming from your hand and sending to your brain. It's not like you're thinking, oh, time to move away your hand from the pot that is now hurting my hand. There's no thought, it's an automatic response. And so that is your nervous system at work using autonomic cues from your body to your brain. Do you feel we look as sympathetic as a negative connotation? Being in sympathetic has a negative connotation, whereas being in rest and digest, parasympathetic is the place to be. I know in the yoga community, a lot of times people will say, we're going to downregulate sympathetic and we're going to upregulate parasympathetic. We want to put you in parasympathetic. Oh yeah, I'm sure that we have tried to make like an enemy of our nervous system and try to make sense of why we're doing what we're doing in certain ways. And I think that it's important to remember that the system was designed and built for you and all of the protective pathways, quote unquote, that have been created were established to actually keep you safe. And so your whole nervous system isn't meant to be an enemy to you. The whole system is meant to be a resource for you to actually be able to handle daily challenges. There's a way to navigate your system in a more regulated way, and there's a way that it can actually be dysregulated and get you stuck in certain states, which is probably why I think a lot of our society, and this is my own opinions, probably operating out of one of a protective pathway, and that's probably why we're most common sympathetic and that could be why that's something that we say. We're gonna, you know, downregulate sympathetic and upregulate this rest piece. So neither one of these systems, whether sympathetic or parasympathetic, is inherently bad. No, no. They're both important and they're both a part of our autonomic nervous system, the whole system. And that kind of connects to the evolutionary history of the nervous system because it built upon itself. So 500 million years ago, the dorsal state was found in a prehistoric fish and that's the first beginnings of our nervous system in a fish y'all in a fish <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> i'm like how did they figure that out mm-hmm. and vertebrates yeah. this is where this all began 500 million years ago yeah and this is where it was kind of like that play dead Mm-hmm. activation was able to keep you safe from potential predators. Yes. Yeah. Dorsal is known as the system of shutdown. And yeah, it's a pathway that was designed to keep you alive, to keep you safe. And, and the so- fish was named, the fish species was the dorsal. There, There's more complete 
name to it. Yeah. But I know it was dorsal something. Yeah. And that's why it's called the dorsal system. Yeah. And then the sympathetic was built upon the dorsal systems. That was about, I think it was like 400 million years ago. And so that was more of light fight responses. That's the system of mobilization, system of action. It's when you are ready to like go. To fight. <laughs> yeah. Or run or yeah, yeah or play. I guess one thing to think about is like how our nervous system is constantly like building on upon itself and it's an adaptive survival system. So it's constantly taking in cues and then creating pathways according to those cues. So I guess hypothetically in my brain, I'm thinking, well, maybe the fish that were playing dead, the predators caught on to that. And so they had to develop some kind of Yeah, over the response. course of a hundred million years, yeah. they're like, we got to update this we system. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> we need to start fighting or running away in order to actually survive. I think there's an intelligence to our bodies or species that we don't acknowledge a lot. And I'm sure that there were fish back then that just kind of developed that kind of indulgence to create that new system and then after the sympathetic was created the ventral vagal was created that's the newest system about 200 million years ago and that is the mammalian species that created that through the social engagement system the social engagement system was a term that's coined by stephen porges that's something we can explain at some point let's talk about it yeah the social engagement system is based off of how species started to create safety Mm -hmm. in numbers Mm -hmm. essentially through connection it's connected to another term created by Stephen Porges which is co-regulation which is a principle of the theory and it's basically the idea that we're wired for connection there is a way that our body can pick up social cues from person to person in order for our nervous system to know that it's safe and what's interesting is before the verbal language the verbal context in which humankind is incredibly dominant on. Before that, for hundreds of millions of years, we have the nervous system intellect of nonverbal communication skills. And I do think that there is a disadvantage to us weighing so heavily on the verbal context and that we short sight all the other opportunities to engage with people mm-hmm. or pick on not pick up on nonverbal cues. Yeah. And this is like the energy that you're walking into a space with. This is your body language. This yes. is how you share eye contact. And when this dorsal vagal subset evolved into this social engagement system, there was a migration of cells that happened into the mouth, the muscles of the face and the mouth and the head. And we know that there was this mammalian context in which we were studying mammals, specifically mothers, feeding their babies. And there was like this deep sensation of relaxation and calm and also complete an entire behavior overhaul when they were creating these environments for their babies to give them this sensation of safety. And they did that through breastfeeding and through these safe community networks. And so specifically the muscles of the face and the mouth, they often are associated with our ability to feel safe and calm. Mm -hmm. And we can tie that to so many things from oral fixations to chewing gum, to smoking, to biting our nails, and so much more. Still enjoying drinking out of straws. It's a sucking sensation. The way that our water bottles are made, it's a calming, it's a subduing effect. And I I find that to be very interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. It's crazy how species have evolved over time. And it connects us to all of creation. Well, species, at least. Creation. Go big. Yeah. (laughs) We're connected to fish. Yeah, (laughs) we are. How does polyvagal theory apply to how we live our lives today? That's a good question. Polyvagal theory has three principles. There's the autonomic hierarchy, which we've kind of touched on. It's the dorsal vagal, sympathetic, and ventral vagal states. There is 
is neuroception and co-regulation and understanding how those operationalize in our lives and in our bodies and in our minds will allow us to understand polyvagal at work. What is co-regulation? Co-regulation is the inherent biological need for connection. It was created because we were born from connection to our mothers and reliant on our caregivers to meet our basic needs. And so co-regulation is a requirement for survival. It's also a requirement for well-being because when people say like you're wired for connection, this is literally what they mean, which is something I was always like, you hear that a lot and you're like, what is that? Why? Uh, What's interesting is during pregnancy, the latter half of the third trimester is when a baby starts to develop most of its neuroceptivity. And when a baby is born into Earthside, there is very little recognition between the difference between itself and its mother, which is so impactful, beautiful, and empowering within the the energy that is motherhood. Mm -hmm. And so babies quite literally start to adopt co-regulation cues from their mom. And there's a lot of soothing that's involved, especially within the first three months of life. So that window when when you're born into this world and you're unable to identify the difference between your nervous system and the nervous system of your main caretaker that's pretty wild you start to adapt and understand and accrue information and knowledge on how to self-soothe how to co-regulate yourself all based off of what's been given to you during that time yes wild to think about that it started its creation in the womb if you think about there is a point when I hold babies they instantly feel nervous I think because I'm nervous (laughs) yeah you can just see like they start to like feel unsure similar premise yeah animals yeah they aren't talking you can't talk with a baby and be like, what do you need? They're giving you cues through their bodies, through an action. Through a know. response. Yeah, they're crying. Through a reaction. They're, mm-hmm. you know, cooing. All of that is helping you understand what your baby needs as a caregiver. I can imagine that caring for an infant is as close as you can get to understanding the nervous system at work before it's added complexities of language, of life experiences. And because a baby is a nervous system, an infant before it can even make facial responses that are coupled with joy or happiness or laughter. Yeah. For about three months there, there's not a whole lot going on. Right. And what is happening between you and your baby is co-regulation and you're using the language of neuroception essentially, which like I said is a term uh, created by Stephen Porges who created the polyvagal theory. And it basically is your internal surveillance system. Neuroception is this system that has been created based off of life experience from when you were a child and onward and it's picking up on cues of danger and cues of safety to communicate to your nervous system what's going on around it if it's safe if it needs to be prepared for a threat or a challenge that faces it so neuroception is your ability to identify danger in your exterior environment yes as well as your interior environment yes and it is speaking autonomically which is like i said unconsciously it's through cues your body is being shown in so your So what does that look yourself. like? I always like to use the example of scary movies because I think that is a really great it's way. It's a slow burn. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, think about it when someone is made silent in the movie. So no one's saying anything, but you can kind of just feel something bad's gonna happen. Usually people are slow. There's sounds 
that maybe you are picking up on rustling in the bushes. All of that can be predatory cues. noises. Yes. That can also be identified as predatory noises. Yes. But what is your body neuroceptively? How does it respond after it's received danger? How do you know oh, that you're yeah. receiving information of danger around yeah, you? Yeah, your hands might get sweaty. Your heart might start to beat faster. Your breath might become shorter. Those are some ways. Increase, yeah, blood pressure, increase yeah. circulation. You might feel hot in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vasodilate. I know sometimes I get like a little jittery. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get gut feeling in my stomach. Mm-hmm. Something's off. And that's another thing. Your nervous system and the neuroception that is a part of that. Someone could tell me something, but if I, and they might be saying all the right things to make me think I can trust them or they're a good person. <laughs> but if they're giving me a quote unquote vibe that makes you feel something's off and I don't know what, that is neuroception at work. That is neuroception at work. Yeah. Especially because it's deep, intricate connection to the vagal system in the body of which is ordinates from the gut to the brain that's gut feeling that we even say in our culture yeah like my gut's just telling me this isn't right because we are so far beyond the verbal context in fact we are short-sighted and we would behoove ourselves to weigh so much of our decisions and Mm -hmm. our communications just based off of the words that we share with one another what's crazy too is and this is just something with the autonomic hierarchy and all the various states and neuroception it's a circuit system in your brainstem Mm -hmm. and it essentially is when you're safe it it gives you the ability to be able to access the higher functions of the brain so when you're in a safe state you're able to actually use logical thought and access these various areas in your brain that you need for a higher function but when you're in a quote-unquote danger state or operating out of a protective pathway that access to the higher function of the mind isn't being used it's turned off because it's only thinking about survival and making it through the threat so let's talk about if you are experiencing an upregulation of sympathetic in your life, Mm -hmm. what does that person look like? That would look like, well, it's the system of mobilization. So you could be very anxious, panicky. It might look like you can't focus on a lot of different things. The constant need to run away, that could be a feeling that you have. Someone who's scared very quickly. Like this is the person that you tap on the shoulder and they're like... (laughs) Jumpy. Very jumpy. Someone yeah. who talks very quickly. Our brains can create meaning. So like stories of like, I have an enemy or the world's against me. That could be like some of the thoughts that you have in that. State. Highly emotive, experiencing mm-hmm. a subset of many emotions. Yeah. High highs, low lows. Just quick to make decision action because there is this mm-hmm. desire to move through sympathetic, which is an action-based mechanism in the body. Mm-hmm. So you'll often experience the feeling of being in sympathetic with wanting to be very active. Active. Oh, yeah. And this could also look like over-exercising. Mm. This could look like that high, that adrenaline rush that mm. you might seek in your life. Someone who might put themselves in adrenaline rush-like behavior might be looking to feel a state of presence that might not otherwise be able to reach unless hitting that top of the pendulum, that crest. Yes, definitely. I think we can find comfortability in what's familiar to us. Mm -hmm. And so if you're someone who feels most comfortable in that state, that would maybe be where you would spend most of your time. And we know that highly anxious individuals sometimes prefer reruns on TV and shows, watch the same thing over and over again, because again, there's that natural inclination to be fearful and to jump. And so consistency Mm -hmm. is such a fantastic way to bring ease in the body. So if you're someone that can resonate with that, I know I can resonate with that. That might be an indication of experiencing high sympathetic. We know in traumatized populations specifically that consistency is key and that's why practices like Ashtanga yoga or doing a very similar, if not exactly 
the same sequence over and over again will create a sense of feeling internally safe. Yeah. So we have this idea that someone might be stuck in sympathetic or they might be in sympathetic for most of the hours of most of their days. Mm -hmm. Why would someone find themselves stuck in sympathetic? How did we get here? Yeah, how did we get here? How did we get stuck in these things? (laughs) Well, ultimately, your body doesn't think it's safe. So the whole goal of your nervous system is to find safety. It's looking for safety. But what if you are safe? That is a good question. So you might be safe, but your body doesn't know that it's safe. And that's why it's so important that we are showing our body cues of safety. I think I had mentioned that it's, you know, your body's picking up on cues of danger and cues of safety. It's this constant balancing scale. And if cues of danger are not resolved or limited, then your body's going to feel like it's in a constant state of protection. It's going to constantly be thinking it needs to fight or flight or it needs to shut down because it can't handle what's going on around it, which is dorsal. So I think that's how we get stuck is when our bodies don't know or aren't shown that it can be safe. And so even if I, if you were having a panic attack or you were experiencing high levels of stress and I was like, Danielle, there is nobody in the house. There's nothing to be fearful of. And I'm like trying to tell you about that. That will not work. That will not work. I have personally been experienced. This is a wild story because I literally felt like I had learned the first time I heard about polyvagal theory was in therapy and so I had learned a little bit about it but none of it made sense because you know trying to understand everything in the midst of feels like the world is ending and there was this one moment where it literally felt like I went through all three states in one period of time a panic attack had occurred and I had a friend that just put their hand on my shoulder there was nothing else that anyone could have done or said would have allowed me to know that my body was okay that I was safe there was no talking talking was not helping (laughs) they didn't hover over me or anything they just put their hand on my shoulder just letting me know that they were there and instantly I started to begin to feel relief and over you know five or ten minutes I was finally able to find myself back to a place where I could talk and express myself in a way that wasn't so reactive So what's interesting is that your body is communicating with you on a completely different context and it's doing it through the sensation based experiences. It's doing that through feeling hot, feeling sweaty, feeling impending doom or fear or anxiety. And at first it begins as little whispers as we're approaching sympathetic Mm -hmm. and we approach sympathetic often every day, if not many times a week, if not many times a day, depending on your life situation. But when we have appropriate reasons to approach sympathetic, the body's whispering you and telling you, okay, you need to be alerted here. You need your vision to be able to take in more. You need to taken lower frequency sounds Mm -hmm. you're quite literally turned on your eyes your ears all senses are engaged Mm -hmm. but after a while when you're no longer in an actual state of distress the body's going to whisper to you no we still think something is wrong but you're not actually physically in a place of danger Mm -hmm. but your body continues to try and communicate with you it will eventually no longer be whispers yeah they will be pleas of Mm -hmm. distress And we have to listen to the cues of imbalance in the body, specifically in the nervous system, when it's trying to tell you that it does not feel like it is in a place of safety. Yeah, definitely. I think a good example for this, when I was a little girl, I actually was hit by a car. I was okay, but I remember after that accident had happened, 
as like a little girl, I was definitely scared of crossing streets. And that would be a good example. Technically, I would look both ways and I knew that there were no cars coming, but my body still wasn't sure because when I had done that last time, I got hit by a car. So your body has to actually, like you have to communicate with it differently using senses, using all of your senses with what you see, taste, smell, hear, everything. How do you overcome that? How yeah. do you overcome a trauma that yeah. has changed the blueprint in which you navigate from and position from moving forward? Well, luckily, what's amazing, oh, that's just such a loaded question. I could go like a million different ways. So what's amazing about our nervous system is that it's an adaptive survival response. So it's constantly taking in cues, like I said. Now, we also have this gift of the brain that's neuroplasticity. So we know that neurons that fire together, wire together, and there's a connection that can be built between those neurons that you know, responses. Between and, repetition. Yes. Like the a frequency pair of leather of shoes. Yeah. You wear them, they start to mold to your feet yes. and start to pick up on the ability to access that. Yes, that is a great metaphor. Our nervous system has been built around that based off of life experience. And so if you have had an experience that has repeatedly shown you that that protective pathway is going to keep you safe. Also, I just thought of something that's really interesting in that the wisdom of our nervous system is such in that we have ability to avoid danger without having to learn it. And so you can think mm -hmm. about watching other animals or species interact with one another and understand mm -hmm. one is predator, one is prey, mm -hmm. and how a hawk and a squirrel, they were not taught mm -hmm. or to identify predator prey behavior, but mm -hmm. it's ingrained in our system. Oh, and yeah. I just thought that that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Kind of unrelated to what we were saying. Well, but yeah, it is ingrained maybe. in our system. Well, with everything that's coming out with epigenetics and mm -hmm. just how like genetics Same thing. change and be passed down, thinking of generations of people that have been oh, traumatized. I, I remember why I was thinking about it. Yeah. And the reason why that's relevant is because your body is trying to imprint information of which could be potentially useful for your offspring. Yeah. And so if that experience happens neuroceptively for a hundred million years, that's yeah. going to be a trait that's then passed off evolutionarily yeah. to help increase the intellect of your species. Yes. So how do you offset something that doesn't need to be passed down? Right. And it's just an onset of acute trauma or just feeling fearful of loud mm -hmm. noises or just constantly jumping around. Yeah. How do we mitigate that feeling of stress in the body? Well, remembering that our body picks up on cues. And so there's practices that you can engage with to help you take tolerable steps to feel safe small practices, it's like stretching. So it's this fine line balance because you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're like set up for failure, where it's too much. You don't have the tools to be able to handle what's going on, where it's reminding you so much of that traumatic experience or that stress or it's stimulating too much to a point where it's not even helpful because you can't even engage with it in a new way because you're now just responding out of a reaction versus a pause, assess, and then I choose a response. So you have to know yourself and have that fine line. And I think self-awareness is really important. Learning what state is being triggered or initiated based off of a stimuli, and then learning how to reconnect things within that context. Let me try to think of a good example. <laughs> okay, I have one. Okay. So when I, <laughs> this is vulnerability at its finest. <laughs> 
Okay, when I feel loneliness or a sense of loneliness, sometimes that can trigger me to get put into a dorsal state where I'm just feeling like I need to shut down. I feel disconnected. I'm depressed. The whole spiel of a spang of a state. <laughs> and a way for me that I've learned recently to be able to show myself a cue of safety in that state is by bringing self-compassion. For when I would feel like a certain way and then get kind of in a funk, I would get so hard on myself. Oh my gosh, why aren't you being different? Why don't you act differently? Why are you like this? And just criticizing myself and like life experience, I've been able to practice compassion with myself in those moments and instead of criticizing myself just like asking questions what do you need right now how did you get here and I've started to just be kinder I see that you're upset I see that you feel lonely and it's it's about like building a relationship with yourself are there certain tools or practices that someone might do to support sympathetic excess mm. for example what would be a foundational principle to bring support to someone who experiences upright regulation of sympathetic. It's important to remember that your system is individualized to you. Your nervous system was created based off of your life experience through everything from childhood and onward. So learning what that looks like for you and what will help you to move through that state is the ultimate answer. That just takes a level of self-awareness and attentiveness and attunement to what your body is saying to you and figuring out what you need in that moment. I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer because nothing can really be fixed with that. But we can learn from each other with sharing our own personal experiences because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of us that can feel similarly in different states. How about play? Play. Yes, <laughs> go for it. I love play. <laughs> It's interesting if you look at young species and how before cues of aggression are built, we experience and see a lot of play. Mm -hmm. And you see that in toddlers and you see that in kittens and you see that in lions and all across the, the board of the animal kingdom. Playfulness that's engaged with movement in community is a fantastic way for you to experience sympathetic that's building the structure of the relationships from you to yourself as well as you to the people around. And that can look like any type of physical movement that induces joy as well as stimulation of the body. Oh yeah. For me, it's like running and sympathetic. Usually if there's something that really pisses me off or like makes me angry, I just need to go for a really long run and I'll be fine after because I use that energy as a resource. So there's a way to navigate your system in a regulated way. We use sympathetic and dorsal vagal energies, quote unquote, throughout different times of our day. So if I am working for a corporate company and there's a deadline I need to meet, oftentimes you'll feel sympathetic energy in order to meet that deadline. And that's not a bad thing. Our stress response is not a bad thing. It's when we are consistently in a stress stimulation, consistently stress stimulated. Absolutely. Yeah. Our sympathetic state is what keeps us alive. It's what allows yeah. us to public speak. It's what allows us to engage in meaningful conversation. It's what allows you to climb metaphorical and physical mountains. Oh, yeah. Your sympathetic nervous system is the system of action and passion. Yes. Well, dorsal is similar. You need that energy as well. It's considered to be the digest part of your nervous system. Why don't we take time to explore what dorsal looks like in that system? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about dorsal. Yeah, absolutely. So dorsal is the system of shutdown. It includes basically the essence of immobilization. So you're detached, dissociated, disconnection. It often has feelings of hopelessness. All these. Give up. 
Did you say all these? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dorsal detached, dysregulated, disconnected. <laughs> I was like, all these, the store? <laughs> yes, all these. And also down regulation. Yes. Dorsal is often associated with the down regulation of many of our 11 systems, and that can look like a decrease in blood pressure, in mm-hmm. circulation, quite literally in mental acuity, mm-hmm. in your ability to engage with others. It's the tune out, turn off mentality yes. of numbing. Mm-hmm. The binging Netflix. Yeah. The staying in bed for 14, 15, 16 mm-hmm. plus hours. That feeling of heaviness in the mind and heaviness in the body. What's crazy is you can't stay in sympathetic. If you're chronically stressed, your body cannot handle that because burnout will happen. Yes. And that burnout basically leads to that shutdown, that system of shutdown, that dorsal state. We've all probably experienced those two different states. Dorsal is so interesting in that it's a recovery period of protection. And the reason why you're getting pulled out of sympathetic is because your body is understanding that even hormonologically, it cannot continue to produce or to meet the demands that you're requiring. And so it's like, you're going to sleep now. Yeah. Yeah. It's shut down. Yeah. You cannot have continuous hormones of adrenaline and cortisol just flowing through your blood (laughs) and that's a lot of times why you'll see dis-ease or chronic health problems in people. I personally believe it's possible that someone could be stuck in a chronic stress state, sympathetic or dorsal, or between the two if they're experiencing a chronic dis-ease. Autoimmune conditions, girl. Yeah. Same idea as inflammation. Inflammation is absolutely necessary for any type of cellular repair in the body. However, inflammation in a chronic state inhibits us from doing major functions. It inhibits many mechanisms that are necessary for resilience in general. And it's that same idea. Sympathetic and inflammation, they are two of the same. How they manifest physiologically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, they all express slightly different, but it's a very similar language. And so likely your body tends to be a different communication mechanism than your body tends to be a mirror for what's happening with your mind, your mental, your nervous system. And so a lot of times what is not brought to balance Mm -hmm. in the mind or in the physical body will show up vice versa. Yeah. So dorsal, do you feel like a lot of people know what dorsal vagal is? I think it's probably the least talked about. When you think survival responses, no one says, oh, shut down. And yet it's the one that's basic, most foundational one of our nervous system. So I don't think we talk about it or maybe are cognizant of it, but it's absolutely something we've all felt and it's a part of all of us. Do you feel like our culture confuses dorsal vagal for baseline balance? Oh yeah, for ventral? Yeah, I think that could absolutely be mis... Let's talk about that. Yeah, well ventral vagal is the system of connection. This is where you feel like your best self. You're connected to yourself. You feel you can connect to others. You can meet the needs of the day. You feel like you can access creativity. You have the ability to communicate and express yourself. It's basically the ability to access those higher functions of your mind. Ventral vagal is to co-regulate with balance and to Mm -hmm. listen to the information of neuroception and instead of react and respond, to simply take that information and then make a decision that's best for you in that moment. Yeah, and ventral vagal is the essence of you are safe. You cannot be fully present in ventral vagal unless your body knows it's safe. 
So how do you feel people might confuse dorsal and ventral? Yeah, they can look similar. The difference is presence. You're present. You're able to be present. And it's connection. So they're actually very opposite. Dorsal is disconnection, not attached. Dysregulated, <laughs> yeah. disconnected, you're, down-regulated. Yeah, you're numbed out. So ventral looks different because you're present, but it's a safe stillness. You're able to actually be accepting and aware of all that is there, all that's present, whether it's suffering or joy or it can be literally anything. It reminds me a lot about meditation, honestly. And I think meditation has this, I don't know if we need to demystify it or something i think obviously it can definitely be a spiritual practice but it doesn't need to be it's very good for you to have a check-in with yourself and to spend a moment to be like i'm just gonna listen to my body listen to the sensations listen to the sounds listen to what's around me i'm going to take note of the thoughts without judgment and without doing anything with it you're literally just present with it all and i remember when when the war on ukraine started or began i I felt very strange being in Dublin, Ohio, going to school, eating breakfast, going to the gym, knowing that a full country was put at war. And I know war is happening all the time everywhere, but that was just one that I was cognizant of and bringing attention to. And in the moment when I was having meditation practices, I would have to hold both. This idea of there's suffering in the world far away from me, and I'm here eating lunch and going about my day. And that's what present can kind of look like. It's not about being fully empty or, I mean, you could probably speak more on this about meditation, but I think you nailed it on the head. It's dismantling this illusion of control and that we actually do not have it. And so much of our relationship with ourselves and the people around us is not governed by time or attachment, rather just simply watching and experiencing the influx of emotions of which are ever changing. However, the presence of your soul, your spirit is unchanging awareness. Yeah. And as you meditate or as you experience the rise of sympathetic or the the lowering of dorsal, mm-hmm. it's like watching the clouds pass through the sky yes. and you're just simply noticing them. Mm-hmm. And I think a token, a golden token that you had mentioned earlier is asking yourself, what do I need in this moment? Mm-hmm. And how do I how did I get here? And that's the practice of meditation. Yeah. And you see so many people have these epiphanies or these miraculous moments of clarity in meditation because it's not the cessation of thought by any means. Just as experiencing your body doesn't mean that you rid yourself of emotion. Mm -hmm. You simply understand your relationship with the emotion rather than identifying yourself as the emotion. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It helps you develop that self-awareness. Like There is an aspect of being an observer to yourself that we've lost. We've lost that ability. And that's kind of what ventral is. It's this ability to be an observer of yourself, your life, your relationship to others, you in the world, and you're able to look at it and be present with it non-judgmentally and without having to fix anything or do anything. And you're able to communicate and be creative and, you know, all those things that come with ventral vagal. And that's very different from dorsal, which is I'm actually don't want to be a part of this world. I want to disappear. I want to not exist. Those are very different things. They are. And I want to talk about, continue to talk about dorsal a little bit because we gave sympathetic its time. But I do want to touch on that societally, we are not setting ourselves up for success in how we talk about our relationship with ourselves. There is this idea of control 
and fix it mentality. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have probably heard of the vagus nerve, and that's this hot topic in the medical community and the wellness community how to hack it, how to upregulate it, how to downregulate it, when really the vagus nerve is a conduit in which influences action and sensation inside of the body. But you yourself having this mentality that I can fix it or I can overturn mechanisms in my body, it gives this idea that our body is rudimentary when the nervous system has preceded human life for hundreds of millions of years. Yes. And so there is a deep intellect and wisdom that comes from many mechanisms in the body, the nervous system, the breath, which is a subset of the nervous system. And we can choose to listen to that, or we can choose to infatuate ourselves and fall prey to this excitement of medical marvels, which are wonderful in their own right, Mm -hmm. but it's not the answer to awareness and spiritual connection. And so the big pharma, the medical complex of how we even choose to govern our relationship with our bodies Mm -hmm. is what I feel like is moving us farther and farther away from what it means to actually be a body that hosts a soul. Yeah. Wow. Drop a bomb. (laughs) So well. You know what I mean? Yeah. The polyvagal theory is basically just mind-body connection. And for years, I would say my body would tell me things, and I just wouldn't listen to it. And you can you can override your body's your body's sensations by being like, oh, that's not important. You can do that with your mind for so long. Yeah, for so long until there's an issue. And I'll never forget. There was one time I saw a naturopathic doctor. I was having like digestive issues, and I was experiencing a lot of stress in my life. It was two years after a couple of very traumatic experiences and I could start to tell that something was wrong with my body but I didn't know what and it was starting to just have really weird things happening that I was like I should see somebody and I thought about going like alternative medicine route so I did that and she said something your body doesn't lie to you and it was a moment of oh my gosh my body's been telling me something and I'm not listening to it what is that telling my body by me not listening so there's this level of self-trust that and self-betrayal self-trust has not been built and self-betrayal has just taken reign and now how does my body know that it can trust when it sends a signal, I'm gonna help it and do something with about it. How does it know that I'm on its same team? I think there's this reckoning that needs to happen with individuals where you start listening to what your body is saying and having that observer mentality because you're not going to understand it. It doesn't speak cognitively. It doesn't have that language. So it's not gonna make logical sense to you. If you wanna lean on logic for the rest of your life, I don't know that that's gonna be the best for your healing journey. Maybe it will, but I would encourage you to maybe try something new. And that's kind of what happened to me. First moment I felt compassion. I literally remember self-compassion. I remember touching my arm and looking at myself. I am so sorry I have not been listening to you. It was definitely a spark of me starting to listen to things that are going on and trying to honor it. Another example, hunger pains. I remember there would be times I've worked very stressful corporate jobs or even just stressful jobs in general. As a social worker, indifferent, everyone has a hard, you work for any way, any place, it's got stress a part of it. But there would be times when I would be starving and I just wouldn't do anything about it. I wouldn't eat a snack, I wouldn't eat lunch because I was meet this deadline, I have to get this quota, I have to blah, 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 whatever I have to do. Well, what is that telling my body? How is my body gonna respond after that? And eventually, I stopped getting hungry. I stopped even feeling a sensation like, oh, we need food now. It just goes away because she's not listening, you know? 
Yeah, your body only is ever trying to operate at 100% efficiency, mm-hmm. ever. But it can only work with what it's given. But the way that you're speaking, it feels there is truly a relationship between your thinking mind and the rest of yourself. And it's there is a collaborative effort between keeping both healthy. Yes. And you can think of it that way. We know that exercising is good for our body. We yeah. know that therapy or exercise is good for your mind. But understanding that we have different requirements and needs to pacify imbalances in the mind and imbalances in the body. Mm -hmm. Granted, they work separately. However, their origins are one of the same. I mean, mind body connection we were literally created for that that's we have deviated from the path of mind body Mm -hmm. union so far that finding our way back is going to take a lot of skill building a lot of listening a lot of observing and mainly above all else curiosity. I think it's kind of, we as a society have really put the thinking mind as the top dog. I'm trying to think of another word. Which honestly doesn't make any sense because it's the novice out of everything else. Yeah. But when I think about- A thousand years old compared to 400 million. Yes. I'm not telling my body to move that calcium phosphate over a membrane. I don't know the terms because I'm not a doctor, but- got the premise there yeah my body has systems it is operating i need to learn how to trust my body my body needs to learn how to trust my mind there's this relationship where both your body's intelligence and your mind intelligence are at the same level together and sometimes we'll feel like my body hates me i'll work with ayurveda clients a lot with that and i'll be like i promise you i can assure you one thing your body does not hate you yeah it's so for you it loves you it just wants you to love it yeah (laughs) that was another thing i was thinking about was how there are thoughts that i can have that can trigger a physiological response and there are also physiological responses that can trigger a thought so I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment where you think about a really embarrassing memory and then instantly your cheeks start to flush and you get really red and you literally want to cover your face because you're like, oh my god I can't believe that just happened or that and it, it didn't just happen it happened forever ago it's coming from memory but that's your mind-body connection and so it's the same thing you can have physiological experiences that are triggering certain thoughts or feelings that connects to the idea of the neuropathways being created. So someone who is experiencing a lot of familiarity in dorsal, this person is downregulated, maybe a little bit dissociated, can take on a little bit more pain. I like to say someone who is hanging out in dorsal for an extended period of time, they likely are not experiencing a lot of sensation, so they have a higher pain tolerance. Mm -hmm. You could likely say maybe something offensive to someone who's stuck in dorsal, and they'll be like, okay, whatever, sure, do your worst. That don't care, that feeling of emptiness, but it's also heavy. And for someone that's experiencing a lot of dorsal stimulation in their life, how can we support a practice or a mindset shift that could help regulate closer to ventral. Well, I'm very comfortable in dorsal. That is where I I like to hang out there. I'm familiar with that one the most. And I have a summer home in dorsal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Like I said, it's definitely individualized. For me personally, yoga was really good for me to learn how to start getting connected to my body and my breath because dorsal vagal for me, it really does feel like disconnection. I'm usually isolating myself. I'm usually feeling very lonely. I And I don't want to see people and I don't even know what's going on with my body. Like, like you said, the sensations are low and down. I've found that practicing yoga has helped me to reconnect with my body and my breath. It's using a little bit of symptoms 
sympathetic energy, which is movement and action, but not to a point where it's, I'm not going to like a full CrossFit workout where I just can't handle it because I'm coming out of dorsal. So yoga is one of those ease ways for me to find ventral again, using a little bit of sympathetic energy. There's ways to navigate through your system by using each state as a resource. Ultimately, being anchored in ventral just means that you're able to navigate through your systems with flexibility and ease. It's about resiliency, recovery, bouncing back. So it's the idea that you should be able to visit sympathetic and visit dorsal at any point in time based on your needs, but ultimately you're anchored in ventral vagal, which is the state of resilience and balance. Mm -hmm. Ventral vagal is essentially going to be the driver to all things in your mind and body. It's putting that in its rightful place and not allowing the other protective states to control all systems. I feel like another great way to ease out of dorsal is community, is social engagement systems. And that can look like co-regulation with somebody that you know very well, that you associate with positive co-regulation, or it can be a mix of some movement. So using that energy of sympathetic and your friends. And I think of that like a rec sport or a group fitness class yeah something where the energy of the space is really what's carrying you through i go to this dance class and i love it not even because of the dance i love it because of the people and the energy there like i could go and just sit in the room and Mm -hmm. still probably receive very similar benefits as actually moving my body oh yeah and i find that to be very helpful as well rooting in your social engagement systems through co-regulation Oh yeah, co-regulation is definitely a huge tool. It's basic need. And so being able to connect with people, I would say it's definitely something to be mindful of. If there are people in your life who are not on a similar healing journey than you and they could potentially be saying words or saying phrases or giving off actions that are triggering for you, it might not be best to use those relationships as a way to find your way back to a safe state. You can also co-regulate and it have a negative impact on you and that can look like surrounding yourself in areas that might invite you to step into an identity that you do not self-identify with. Mm -hmm. And this can look a lot different depending on what system of relationships you are in, but a great example is family systems. So when you step into a family system, let's say your own family system, and you're known as the funny one, or you're known as the jokester, or the irresponsible one, or the one can, who can never get it right, and you're constantly re-engaging in these family structures or these relationship systems, mm-hmm. your identity is self-imposed upon you. It can create momentum for you to feel like you have to rise into that identity. Mm-hmm. And that's an example where co-regulation could have a negative impact on you, mm-hmm. where you do not feel yourself aligned with your actions, your behaviors, even the energy that you are taking in. Co-regulation's like a window. Mm-hmm. You can Choose to open it however much you want to receive and or to give energy with the people that you are around. Mm -hmm. For people pleasers out there, and I can resonate with this so deeply, my window has been stuck open for just about my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I have given and received like the person who looks on me at the side of the street. I'm like, here is it all. And I'll take all yours. And with that comes the skill of building boundaries 
and your relationship to how you want to navigate co-regulating with the people around you. Yeah, I think co-regulation is one of the most fascinating parts of the whole theory, especially if we're talking about family systems, because we had said you're born out of co-regulation with your mother. You need that connection in order to survive. Your co-regulation at birth and onward through childhood ultimately creates the foundation for your self-regulation. And so the attachment styles and even just like homeostasis of families, what you're kind of touching on, it's fascinating. I love (laughs) thinking about it because I'm an identical twin. So I was co-regulating with another person with another energy an entirely different soul in the womb before I even knew what co-regulation was before my nervous system was Mm. created I was co-regulating with another being which is pretty crazy to think about and how I look at it as an absolute gift because when I am in conversation with her or sharing space with her or we are holding space for each other I look at her body and the way that she communicates with me as a mirror of myself, mm-hmm. she's just a slightly different version of myself, really. Yeah. And I look at that and I'm like, this is a way for me to offer self-compassion to myself by offering self-compassion to her. Oh. And it's really fucking trippy That's sometimes. Yeah. And it's like, how would I offer love to myself? A lot of times it's really difficult to offer self-compassion to ourselves mm-hmm. because that relationship isn't something that has been hierarchically oh chosen gosh. to be our number one. We weren't necessarily taught that we ourselves are our own best friends. Mm-hmm. However, having my twin sister be a mirror for myself Mm -hmm. but it's easier for me to offer compassion towards it because it is not technically me Mm -hmm. and I look at that as like one of my greatest teachings in life oh yeah no that's beautiful let's talk about what it looks like to be anchored in ventral vagal and to visit sympathetic and dorsal as needed in a way that's balanced Mm -hmm. so on a day-to-day basis the idea is that you are existing in ventral vagal You feel resilient in body and mind. So that Mm -hmm. looks like a strong immune system. That looks like being able to take on potentially challenging situations Mm -hmm. with a level of ease and confidence Mm -hmm. to navigate through your life with that confidence and ease so you feel like you're able to do what it is you are here to do. Mm -hmm. However, we live with other humans and we our reality is built on performance and obligation. So sympathetic might look like somebody who is able to activate when they need an energetic upregulation yeah. and that could look like performing in a sport yeah. or that could look like when you when you're a mom and you're taking care of your child and that survival instinct comes in that could look like public speaking when you're in those moments of sympathetic you activate it and you're present with it and you notice that you can see, taste, hear more mm-hmm. and using that upregulation, that vasodilation, that increase in blood pressure and blood flow to my advantage. However, I'm noticing what's happening around me and within me mm-hmm. so I don't go too hard and maybe twist my ankle or have um, heat exhaustion, you know, Mm. things like that have happened to me before where you overwork your body. I'm very attuned to what I need. So in those moments when I need water or I need a supplement or food, I'm able to listen to those body cues. Mm -hmm. And what about dorsal? How do we use dorsal in balance? So I went to my volleyball game I was in sympathetic. We won championship. Yeah. Woohoo. Yeah. 
And then what does it look like to visit dorsal? Yeah, so um, in dorsal, how that looks maybe like in a regulated way is like sitting outside for 15, 10 minutes and letting the sun just hit your face or laying by the pool because it's Sunday and you're with your friends and you're resting and rejuvenating and refreshing and you're still communicating with people around you and in connection, but it's coming from a place of you are resting. It's time to allow yourself to turn off and um, be present, but also allow like the systems of your body to slow down and rejuvenate. I feel like reading a book in a hammock yes. is like dorsal in a picture for yes. me. Yes, yes, absolutely. What is a tip for someone who feels like they're stuck in sympathetic versus someone who feels like they're stuck in dorsal? What's your mm-hmm. main tip? I would assess I would just take a pause and just notice what your body sensations are notice the thoughts that exist and if you feel like it's possible to ask yourself some questions how did I get here what do I need and then I think ultimately doing something because the your body is asking for action it's a system of action mobilization so doing something that will allow you to feel like you can return to that safe place. I guess those can look different in a regulated way, in a dysregulated way. So what you would do if you are coming out of a place of threat to show your body is safe versus what you would do when you're just in that state, you know, coming back from your volleyball game, those actions might look different, but your body wants to finish the process of action. So whether that means crossing something off your list, or if that means going for an angry run, (laughs) then do that. I love asking yourself, what do you need? How did I get here? Oh, yeah. Those are, that's really powerful. Those are the two questions I ask myself all the time. <laughs> yeah, those are good. Yeah. I think we covered polyvagal theory. I think Stephen Borgia would be proud. Yeah. <laughs> he is the gentleman who created this concept in theory in 1994, 28 long years ago. And some resources that we really love is this book called Anchored. Yeah. Befriending your nervous system. What is By authors? Deb Dana. By Deb Dana. Mm-hmm. Anchored by Deb Dana. And we'll post some extra resources if you guys want to learn a little bit more. But thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Marina. This is awesome.